There we go. Baruch everyone. Welcome to week 38 of the Safari Chabura. We have some very, very exciting news to announce tomorrow. Um, a new website, a new podcast, a new journal, new curriculum for the next quarter before we go into membership mode in July. So a lot will be happening tomorrow. Make sure your phone is at the ready, if one could say such a thing. Uh, really, really, really honored and excited to have Rabbi Faul back for part two of how to study Talmud. The first part a couple of weeks ago, I cannot, I, I, there is no exaggeration when I say uh, it, it, it essentially received the most uh, feedback that we've received thus far, positive feedback. Uh, already we can see from the views, it's almost it's over 600 views and counting. And I think it very much represents the crux of what we're trying to do at the Chabura. So we are very, very excited for Rabbi Faro to continue this wonderful series. I'm going to do a quick intro again for those who weren't there for the first week. Uh, rabbi Faur is the rabbi of congregation Ohel David and Shalomon in Manhattan Beach, New York. Rabbi Faur was ordained by Rav Mordechai Eliyahu and Rav Abraham Shapira. He teaches Talmudic and rabbinic thinking in accordance with uh, the Hachamim of Andalusia and the teachings of his father, the great Hacham Jose Faur, alava shalom. Rabbi Abe has studied various scientific and philosophical disciplines, and we are very excited to have Rabbi Faur as our Talmud teacher uh, for the membership curriculum that will begin in July. Uh, Rabbi Faur, thank you for being here. B'chavod. Thank you, Sina, for that uh, introduction. Um, in terms of just uh, technical aspects, um, if you and for the recording purposes, um, if you can have the uh, pin pin my uh, my my image. I would uh, thank you for that as well, and 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 thank you for the all the individuals who are who have established this uh, wonderful forum where people from uh, all over the world can get together and study Torah together. I think it's great. Uh, I personally enjoyed the opportunity uh, a couple of weeks ago to introduce you to the study of Talmud in accordance with the methodology of the Geonim and Hachman uh, Andalus. Um, so um, here's part two. Uh, before proceeding with part two. I just want to summarize for you the primary lessons of the uh, previous class. So the Jewish system of law, starting from Moses, Moses comes down from Har Sinai, he receives the Torah, he receives the Torah Shabbat Alpeh, and he teaches Torah in Oel Moed. Um, and he teaches Torah uh, to the Jewish people, to Ben Israel, to the Israelites uh, over the course of 40 years. This system of law continues until the end of the second commonwealth. So it continues throughout the desert, throughout the first commonwealth, by Rishon, destruction of Bayit Rishon, Bayit Sheni. And this system of law was analogous in some ways to the British common law system. To wit, during this extended period of history, in the Jewish legal system, there were no formal, authoritative, written codes of law that one could turn to. In order to find out what the law was in any given circumstance, there was no book that you say, okay, let me, let me open the book and here's the answer. And this is because Jewish law 
was transmitted orally. It's the oral law. So if you were a student of Moses, you knew the law by virtue of having received it from the great master. If you were a student of a student of a student, you knew the law. If you would make the effort to study it with somebody who received it from a previous generation, but there was no book that summarized these laws. Now, the reason there was no book that summarized these laws, it's not that people were too lazy to write books. That's not the reason, right? It was part of the system. Um, so for example, if one wanted to know what constitutes cooking on Shabbat, it's prohibited to cook on Shabbat. But how exactly do we define cooking? Well, there was no formal authorized text that stated the law in a precise linguistic formulation. Rather, it was the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, eventually the Supreme Court of the Jewish people sitting in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, that received the oral law lessons from the previous generations and transmitted these oral law lessons to the subsequent generations. So as there was no fixed formulation of the oral law, what was important and what was transmitted were the conceptual aspects of the law, concepts, how the law was phrased. That was based on the personal preference of the particular Supreme Court justice that may have been teaching the law to his students. So during these very during these periods of history or during this long period of history, the very idea of formulating the law in a fixed linguistic formulation was non-existent. There was no, or there were no official Jewish law codes. Um, if someone would have suggested, well, let's, let's set down Jewish law into a code, this suggestion would have been viewed as absurd. There was no need to do it. That was the function of the judiciary. The reason we have the judiciary is to receive, apply, and transmit Jewish law. So that's just the way the system worked. Authorities in all matters of law lie exclusively with the Batedin, with the judiciary, with the Sanhedrin. They were the official body that was also authorized to receive the oral law. They were the official body that was authorized to transmit the oral law. And they were the official body, and indeed the only body, that was authorized to apply the oral law. And I want to tell you that the judicial authority to receive, transmit, and apply the oral law is explicit in the Chumash. It's in the Perashat Shofetim, at the beginning of the Perashat. And I want to read to you a few of the Pesukim, just so it's clear to everybody how the authority of the judiciary in this regard is very clear in the Torah Shabichtav itself. So... I'm reading to you in, in, in Perashat Shofetim at the beginning, the Pasuk says, Ki So the Pasuk says, perhaps it's going to be an aspect of the law that is not clear to you, that is hidden from you, right? Um, an aspect of the law involving uh, capital punishment, an aspect of the law involving purity, impurity. And, and there's a dispute. There's a dispute regarding this particular or these particular laws. What do you do? Who has the authority to answer to the question? So is it a prophet? Maybe you go to a prophet. Or, or maybe you go to a very wise man. Maybe you go to Gadol Hador. 
so the answer is you have to go to that place, that physical location, which is chosen by God, that physical location being the city of Jerusalem, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, Har Sion, where the Mikdash, um, it wasn't built yet, of course, the Jewish people are in the desert when they're hearing these Pesukim, but where the Beit Mikdash will be, because in that place will be the Sanhedrin, and they are the ones that you go to with respect to questions of law. Uh, the Pasuk continues and says, And these people will give you the law. They will tell you how to apply the law, what to do. And not only will they tell you what to do, the Pasuk continues and it says, um, You have to do exactly as they tell you to do. Be careful to observe their instructions. So here you see clearly that it is the judiciary that receives the law, transmits the law, explains the law, and their explanations are the authoritative application of the law, right? So that's important. That's important. Um, and that's a Jewish law system. So again, there was no point in writing a book. I could have been there. I could have written the best book on the laws of Shabbat, but that book would not be the authority. The authority lies with the judiciary. That's the state of affairs in the Jewish people for well over a millennium. Let's now go forward in a dramatic and controversial move. Rabbi Akiva, Akiva, he lived at the end of the second commonwealth and he actually witnessed the destruction of the the Baicheni, decided to initiate a radical project. And that project is the transformation of the Jewish common law system of the Israelite nation and just... uh, and remember that until now, it's uh, the uh, common law system is predicated upon the judiciary. The legal system that the Biakiva wanted to put into place was a legal system based upon a linguistic formulation of the law. Some of you may recognize this as similar to the civil system of law um, prevalent in certain European countries. This is roughly analogous to to the Napoleonic Code, officially the Civil Code of um, France. Under the civil system of law initiated by the Biakiva, the oral law was going to be reduced to and set forth into a fixed linguistic composition. I just want to add quickly because I don't want you to take the analogy too far. I said that this is similar to the European civil system of law, the French Napoleonic Code. It's not identical to there. There are differences, right? But it certainly helps us understand, as as an analogy, it helps us understand what Biakiva was doing. So, um, and, and it's a useful analogy. So as not all of you are trained jurists, it would not be without merit to consider, if only for a moment, the difference between common law 
and civil law systems, because you'll you'll see that the pre-Biakiva system, as I noted, was a common law system, and the post-Biakiva system, or the system initiated by the Biakiva, was similar to the civil law system. So the main difference between the two systems is that in common law countries, what they call case law countries, uh, the judges sitting in their courts, they, they, they make declarations about the law and they publish these declarations in judicial opinions. Um, what's important is what the judge says in the common law system. So what's important is how the judges analyze the law, how they apply the law. In contrast, in civil law systems, they have codified statutes. These codified statutes are drafted and ratified by state legislative bodies. And that's what's important. What's important is what's in the code, right? The job of the judge is not to invent laws. The job of the judge is to interpret the existing statutes and to apply them properly, right? And to the extent that a judge is not applying the statute properly, he's um, actually not doing his job. So the job of the judge in the civil law systems is far more limited and his authority is far less than in the common law systems. So this is the direction that the Biakiva is going in. Um, and um, let me ask a question. Why? Why is he doing this? And it's important to consider the answer. The utility of a fixed textual formulation of the oral law is that it does not require a judiciary. It does not require a Supreme Court, meaning a Supreme Court and a judiciary are absolutely necessary to maintain a common law system because there is no common law if there's no judiciary, by definition. Um, so if there was gonna be no network of courts anymore with the disappearance of the network of Jewish courts the common law, the Torah Shabbat Peh of the Jewish people will disappear. So what do we have instead? If we have a fixed linguistic formulation of the oral law, right? That fixed linguistic formulation can be studied and received by the hachamim and laymen alike outside any courthouse. You don't need the courthouse in order to do that. So, and as history has amply demonstrated, the oral law system uh, put into place by the Biakiva, what eventually becomes the Mishnayot, right? The Mishnayot is that fixed textual formulation of the oral law. It was a great success. We lost our judiciary. We lost our state. We lost our nationhood. And yet we maintained the oral law because we had this fixed textual formulation of the oral law, the Mishnayot. And I want to read to you um, page 86 of my father's uh, Golden Doves because he actually addresses this very question quite nicely. So let me read it to you. Uh, give me a moment. Here it is. Okay, it's a short paragraph. So the question again being, why does Rabbi Akiva do this? Why does he decide to do that transition? 
to a fixed textual formulation of the oral law when until now there was none. And here it is. In order to salvage a modicum of Jewish autonomy, political necessity required the collecting and authoritative transmission of the pronouncements of the rabbis in precise terminology. Uh, perhaps I should be reading the paragraph before. So let me, let me give you a little more historical background because I'm being a bit, uh, I'm making certain assumptions and maybe those assumptions should be further explained. So give me a moment. The historical background is very clear. Um, as I said, Rabbi Akiva lived in the days of the Second Commonwealth. He saw the destruction of the Second Commonwealth. He saw the destruction of Jewish nationhood. He understood that this was going to happen. He understood that the Romans are going to destroy the political autonomy of the Jewish people and the Beit HaMikdash and the Sanhedrin, and there will be no Jewish courts. That's a historical background. And, and now you understand the sentence in the Golden Doves. In order to salvage a modicum of Jewish autonomy, political necessity required the collecting and authoritative transmission of the pronouncements of the rabbis in precise terminology. This ideology was finally realized with the formulation of the Mishnah of Judah, the, of the prince. So you see um, uh, what happened here is Rabbi Akiva was, um, there's a, a statement in Perkei Avot, a wise man has the ability to see in, into the future. Well, it's not enough just to see into the future, but you need to act upon what you're seeing. And that's the greatness of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva saw into the future. He understood it's over. He understood that Jewish people are not going to be um, expelled from Israel and displaced into the different corners of the world. So what's going to happen to the Torah Baal comes Rabbi Akiva and he acts upon that knowledge. He acts upon the future knowledge that he has or the knowledge of the future that he has rather. And he decides to put into this place this um, Mishnayot, which is going to displace the previous system of law of the Jewish people. So um, it, this project was started by the Biakiva. It was immense in scope. It was a multi-generational project. And it was ultimately finished by the Biyudanasi. The Biyudanasi didn't start the project. The Biyudanasi merely finished the project. He completed the project. He edited the various collections that are Biakiva and Islamid Rabbi Meir. And he ended the final edition of the Mishnayot together with his Betin, together with his court. They finalized um, uh, the Mishnayot. So that's how it happened. And as noted, this project was a radical transformation of the oral law uh, system. Uh, you know, and, and as you know, when we try to do changes uh, within the Jewish people, there is always going to be some opposition. Um, so I just, you know, a note about that opposition. Um, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a rabbi. So, um, and with COVID-19, there was, you know, some, some changes uh, as time, at times in services. Um, so just a personal anecdote. Um, we, uh, there's a custom among some Sephardic Jews that when you say the HaKarazat Rosh Chodesh, uh, you're going to declare on Shabbat morning that uh, the next week is going to be a Rosh Chodesh. Some people... Um, they come up to the Torah, they come up to the Tevah, and they, they, they hold the Torah while the Hazan or the rabbi is saying the Hazat Chodesh. And we kind of decided that because of COVID-19, that's, you know, not necessarily a good idea. We'd rather have people sit down and not be there physically um, holding the Sikhret Torah. Um, and it, it created a minor, um, you know, 
uh, a minor brouhaha. <laughs> Some people were unwilling to to accept that. I mean, it was just too much to accept. Now, there's no there's no halachic requirement to do it, but this is our nature. Uh, the nature of the Jewish people is this is the way I've done it, and I'm not changing it, and that's it. Um, so why am I saying this? Can you imagine the opposition that Rabbi Akiva faced? I mean, you know, he's like, he's basically saying the Sanhedrin is over and this whole system of doing things for well over a thousand years started and instituted by Moshe Rabbeinu. He's saying, that's it. I'm, I'm, I'm proposing something, something completely radical uh, and, and something completely different, radically different. I'm sorry. So not surprisingly, there was opposition to the Biakiva. And you might say, well, we don't know too much about such opposition. Uh, why would that be? Well, the simple reason is that most of what we know from the period of the Tanaim and earlier comes from the school of Rabbi Akiva because at the end he was successful and he collected the Mishnayot and he collected the Baraitot and everything we have is actually from Rabbi Akiva and his students. Um, so if most of what we know is from the school of Rabbi Akiva, it's actually remarkable that we do have some sources in the Talmud and elsewhere that insinuate opposition to the Akiva. Not a lot, but it's there. So I just want to make you familiar with some of these sources. There is a Gemara in, uh, in Masechet Sotad of uh, Bet, and it says as follows, the Tana withers the world. He, he, literally, he brings destruction to the world. Why would that be? So let me explain this to you, because this is another um, foundational idea, the Tana. The Tana was actually a creation of Rabbi Akiva. Let me explain to you what the Tana is about. We're now going to have this collection of linguistic compositions, and we're going to, we're going to bring it together, and we're going to formulate the, the oral law as a fixed linguistic composition. Well, what do you need now? You're going to need to have a new professional class. In the past, you had the judges, and the judges received the oral law. Who's going to receive this fixed linguistic composition? The answer is people with phenomenal memories who have the ability to memorize and transmit further these linguistic compositions. These people were called Tanaim. The Tanaim were people with phenomenal, phenomenal memories whose job was to commit to memory the new collections of halachot formulated by the Biakiva, by the Bimeir, by the Ben Kadosh. So let's elaborate on this point a little. Um, so we have the oral law, and it was going to be reduced to a textual format, to a linguistic composition. Now, this text was not going to be a written text. Because in the Torah thinking, there was a, a vast difference between a written text, the Humash, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, which are all written, Beruah uh, HaKodesh or Binvu'ah, or greater than it was in the case of Moshe Rabbeinu, only those compositions can be published as the books of the Jewish people, as the written books 
of the Jewish people. Rabbi Akiva is not proposing that we add new written text to the books of the Jewish people. We have the Al-Bab Esrim. Rabbi Akiva is proposing an oral text. So what makes something written or oral is not just whether you write it down, but it's the status of the text. So the Jewish written text, the Al-Bab Esrim is composed of 24 books, and those books have a particular status, and maybe one day we can study what that means, because there's a lot to say about that. The Mishnayot is not one of those books. So if I want to transmit a written text, how do I do it? Well, I have to write it down. I have to write it down properly. For it to attain the status, the Kedushah of a written text, it has to be properly written down, as we write the Chumash in the Sefer Torah. Back then, they used to write the Nevi'im down as well. They also used to write down the Ketuvim. So if you had, an, if you had the um, Aron HaKodesh in the Beta Keneset, back then they would have Kumashim, but they would also have the books of the Nevi'im, meaning not like we have today, where you have a Sefer Aftarah, where every, shelf, every week you have a different Aftarah and it kind of skips order, that's, that's, that has no status. They used to actually, actually used to have the entire Nevi'im from the book of Yoshua all the way to the book of Malachi. And they had similarly for the books of the Ketuvim. So those were written texts. Right? So how do you transmit a written text? You set, it, you, you, you set forth the writing in accordance with the halachot that determine how to write. Right, We have very specific halachot. And then you physically deposit these writings in the public, in the Aron HaKodesh, right? in the Bet HaMikdash, or in your house, you can give the Sefer Torah to your children. That's how you transmit a written text. How do you transmit an oral text? Well, as I said, there's no official writing because it's not considered written, it's oral. So if there's no physical text to transmit, how do you do it? And the answer is it's transmitted orally, right? Um, uh, my father points out how uh, when they wanted to transmit the Gemara, the, the Chachamim of Babel wanted to transmit the Gemara to the Jews of Andalusia, the Hachamim of Andalusia, uh, Rav Netronai Gaon actually went to um, went to Andalusia, went to the yeshiva, and he actually recited the entire Gemara to them, and that's how it was transmitted. Why, why is that so important? Um, it's, the point here is not to um, highlight the phenomenal memory that he had. The point is to highlight the way the transmission of oral texts take place. So he transmitted it to them orally. Now they wrote it down. Of course, they wrote it down. But what's important is the fact that this writing represents the oral transmission, in this case of the Gaon, and what gives this writing status is not that the writing itself has a Kedushah. It doesn't have the Kedushah of a Sefer Torah or a Sefer Nevim or a Sefer Ketuvim. It's considered an oral text. And its authority is by virtue of the fact that this represents a record of what the Gaon said. So now you understand the purpose of the Tanaim. The purpose of the Tanaim, the Tana was established by the Biakiva as a way to transmit further the Torah Shabbat Alpeh, because you're going to need it, because once the Mishnayot um, are, are formulated, you're going to need Tanaim who memorize the Mishnayot and who transmit the Mishnayot onwards. And by the way, if you wanted to enter the Yeshiva in Babel, you had to know the Mishnayot Be'alpeh, right? Because that means if you knew the Mishnayot Be'alpeh, that means you received the oral text of the Jewish people. 
So let's go back to the statement in Masechet Sotah Davkaf Bet. The Tana withers the world. Wow, I mean, that's like, that's heavy. Why would anybody say that? And the answer I think now is clear. The institution of the Tana at some level was meant to replace the institution of the Sanhedrin, um, or to be more precise, the transmission of common law that was done by the Sanhedrin was replaced with the transmission of halachot that was now done by the Tanaim. Yeah, not everybody accepted what Rabbi Akiva was doing. That, that's pretty clear. Let me give you another odd uh, Talmudic passage. Again, that <laughs> shows that Rabbi Akiva did not have the full support of all of the Hakamim. There's a story in Masechet Menachot. Um, this is Daf um, Kaftet. In Masechet Menachot, it says that when Moshe Rabbeinu decided one day to come down from Olam Haba and to enter the yeshiva of Rabbi Akiva. And Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting in the yeshiva and he can't understand a single word. Okay, I mean, what does that mean? Why wouldn't Moshe Rabbeinu be able to understand a single word um, given the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Har Sinai, received the Torah Shabbat transmitted the Torah Shabbat Rabbi Akiva is a student of a student of Moshe Rabbeinu. Maybe there will be some things he can't understand, okay, but he can't understand anything. Why would that be? Um, I, th- I think, again, the criticism is very sharp and it's clear because Rabbi Akiva completely changed the system of transmission. So the Moshe Rabbeinu didn't understand what, what's taking place here. I don't remember this. And in Oen Moed, things were a little different, right? Well, there's another story, which I studied when I was very young, where uh, I think this is in the, um, in the Sifre, the beginning of the Sifre. Um, so there was, and it, but, it, but it's one of the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah, the Gemara brings there that, um, no, I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry. The Gemara and Masechet Abu Zarah brings a different story. Let me start with that one. There's a Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma is talking with Rabbi Akiva and he tells him the following words. I would be surprised if they, meaning the Romans, do not burn you together with the Sefer Torah. What's that about? I mean, it, this is really heavy stuff. And, and what he's saying, he's implying that Rabbi Akiva is going to be brought with the Sefer Torah, meaning the transformation that Rabbi Akiva brought about. It's, 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 it's horrible in the view of Rabbi Yosem and Kisma. Um, there was another story I remember from the Sifre. It was with Rabbi Nehunya ben Akana. This was the beginning of, um, of the Sifre. And with Rabbi Nehunya ben Akana, he sends his personal... Uh, um, um, assistance um, to catch the Biakiva and to flagellate him. And in the story, the Biakiva has to run up this tall um, uh, palm tree and he's up on the top of the palm tree. And apparently the assistance of Rabbi Nehunyab and Akana were not, um, were not strong enough to climb up the palm tree and, um, and, and, and they, can't, they cannot flagellate him. So the purpose of all of this is to highlight to you 
that the transformation that the Biakiva brought about was met with great opposition. So we learned two things. On the one hand, we learned that there was opposition, but on the other hand, you understand that there was a transformation, right? That's, really, that's also important to understand. There was a tremendous radical shift in the way Jewish law was presented, in the way it was transmitted. And this is all thanks to Rabbi Akiva, his Tamid Rabbi Meir, his Tamid Rabbi Udanasi, and all the other Hakamid that were involved in uh, this uh, project. Okay, let's leave that for now. I want to introduce you now to a new concept. In order to understand the significance of what the Biakla was doing, what the Mishnah Yot are about, there's two words. And at the phonetic level, you certainly understand these words, you heard them. I wanna give you a slightly more precise explanation or definition of these words because this will serve to elucidate many of the points that we are discussing. The two words are halacha and agada. Generally, the word halacha, I'm sure almost everybody here heard the word, um, is a word that is roughly and traditionally translated as the law or legal material. On the other hand, the word agada is a word that usually designates stories, uh, folklore. Um, but don't hold on to those definitions too stubbornly because they don't always work very well. Um, for example, Sheva Misvot Benenoah, these are laws. We have a whole series of halachot um, explaining how this, the seven Noahide laws work. Arambam brings it in Hilchot Melachim, Mishneh Torah, Book Halacha. And yet, the Sifra de Agadta, the book of Agadot, brings the Sheva Misvot Ben Enoch. How is that a, how is that a story of folklore? Um, this should be in a book of Halachot, not in a book of Agadot. If we are to take the meaning of Halacha to mean law and the meaning of Agadot to mean folklore, this wouldn't make very much um, sense. And actually, if you look at various Midrash Agadah, like Midrash Rabbah, Midrash Shachoma, very often you see that these Agadic books, these Agadah books, contain Jewish law in them. Why is that? Okay. On the other hand, you have the word halacha oftentimes used for um, Agadah. The famous statement, you've all heard it, and I'm pretty sure that you may not have fully understood what the statement means. The statement is as follows. Halacha. Aisav sone et Yaakov. It is if I'm to use now the more common translation, it is a law that Esav hates his brother Jacob. How is that a law? That's not legal. I mean, it may be correct. It, you know, it is correct. Okay. But how is that a law? So my father in the Golden Doves explains that these two words pertain to two distinct modes of oral transmission. There are two ways to transmit. Allow me to explain. A statement can be transmitted by a teacher to his students verbatim, word for word. I want you now to remember exactly the following words. And first, study the words. 
ממתי קוראים את שמה בערבית? משעה שהכוהנים נכנסים לאכול בתרומתם. Or, אמר נתיש את רוז השבת. יסיעות השבת, שתיים שאין ארבעה בפנים, ושתיים שאין ארבעה בחוץ. Remember those words. Study those words. I will explain them. I will explain the words. But first, study those words, because that's where the authority lies. The authority lies in those specific words. And don't mess up the order. Don't mess up anything, because that's what you need to know. That's one way to transmit a lesson. And the second way to transmit the lesson is conceptual. Um, let's go back to Yisrael Shabbat. I can explain to you conceptually. There's Arbar Yisrael Shabbat. If a person makes Akira Neshut Arabim and Anachai Neshut Deachid Yishayav and vice versa, and I can explain to you the different concepts and, you know, write it down in your notebook because you want to write it down. The, 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 the order of the words is not so important. Um, in the case of the verbatim transmission, with a word for word a transmission, the student would be expected to commit the words precisely to memory. In the case of the conceptual transmission, the student will be required to understand the concepts with the particular linguistic formulations used by the teacher being of um, secondary importance to the lesson. Halakha. The word halakha designates those traditions that were set forth into a precise linguistic formulation. That's what a halakha is. Halakha, Esav sone et Yaakov. Remember those words, right? Um, on the other hand, agada refers to traditions that were not reduced to a precise linguistic formulation, but rather were transmitted at the conceptual level. Hence, the text of Ahagadah is not subject to scrutiny and does not need to be committed to memory. And they never were committed to memory. Why is that? Because the text is not important. It's the concepts that are important. Now you can understand, it's clear that legal concepts are more readily reduced into a, a fixed linguistic uh, formulation. That's clear. And that's why they associated the word halakha with law. Similarly, its ideas, stories, folklore are more readily reducible to these formulations where the linguistics around it are less important. And what's important is a concept. And Hanamam discusses this in the Morene Buchim. He says that when you study Agadot, you have to understand what words in Agadot are peripheral and what words in Agadot are key. You see, so the linguistic formulation is not so important in the case of Agadot. So it's just the nature of what you're transmitting. Folklore, mysticism um, works better in Agadot. Jewish law works better in Halachot. Excuse me. <clears throat> There's an um, English historian, uh, Francis A. Yates, who was from the 20, 20th century. She distinguishes between things that are the subject matter of speech, right? And words that are the language in which the subject matter is clothed. Agadot, the subject matter of speech. Halachot, language in which the subject matter is clothed. So that's, that's very, very interesting. Um, okay. So this distinction between Agadah and Halakha is essential to understanding the Akiva's strategy. Until this time, the emphasis was always on the transmission of concepts. 
the subject matter. Now there was a transition to an emphasis on a specific textual formulation, the words in which the subject matter is transmitted. These um, specific textual formulations were called halachot. These halachot were collected and organized into different collections. The most important collection of halachot is the Mishnayot. It's not the only collection of halachot, but it's the most important one. So uh, because we're coming close to Pesach, <laughs> perhaps I can, uh, uh, you know, delve a little more deeply into the meaning of the word Haggadah, as in the Haggadah of uh, Pesach. Uh, the triliteral root of the word Haggadah is Nun Gimel Dalet, Nagad, right? Which means to um, relate something, to say something. So um, you say Lehagid, right? But Lehagid doesn't just mean to say something. Because in the word Nagid, you also have the idea of a Nagid. What is a Nagid? A Nagid is a prince, a political authority. So when you're magid something, you're relating something that you experienced. That's what gives you the authority to be a nagid. You're a nagid, you're in a sense of prince now because you experienced it. You knew what happened and now you're relating it to somebody else who didn't experience it. So that's the idea of Haggadah. I'll get back to that in a moment. Just, but let me, let me go just... Um, um, digress. For example, the word Amar. Um, in this case, Moshe Rabbeinu is not free to use his own words. Hashem is giving him a specific formulation. And you repeat it exactly as I told you to, 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 to state it, right? Let, let's go back to the word Nagad, Hagada. Right? So, um, Nagid, as I said, is a person of authority. So, what do we do on Pesach? The Pasuk says that on the night of Pesach, you will say it to your son in your own words, because the idea of Haggadah is it's in your own words. By what authority can you tell your son, your sons, your children, the colleagues around you, everybody is discussing that? What gives you the authority to speak about this in your own words? Because on that night, you have to show yourself as if although you left Egypt, you experienced it. And because you experienced it, you become a Nagid that night. And now you can relate to the people around you what it is that you experienced, right? So the Haggadah gives you the right now, not just to read, but rather to discuss it. And to say things. Now, you're going to teach it to your children. Lemor. They didn't experience it. You're telling them. So your children, they have to accept it as an amira. You formulate it in your own words. Your children, not having experienced it, is lemor. They take your words and they, 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 they remember the words. Eventually, they will internalize the words and then they themselves will become uh, nagidim. They themselves will become people who have authority, who, are, who have experienced it because they internalize the experience, right? So the experience is passed on from generation to generation, right? So that's the idea of the Haggadah. The Haggadah is us relating to the people around us 
what took place in Egypt. And that's what we, we, we imagine that we just left Egypt. We imagine that we left Egypt. We, we discuss the, um, uh, the experience. Okay. Um, there's a lot more I wanted to say. There's a lot more I plan to say, but I'm kind of going to skip to the, uh, end of the class. I'm just, um, I, I, obviously, um, I guess it's better to have the things, um, that I couldn't say, um, so we can save it for later, I suppose. I wanted to introduce, introduce you to some concepts about the Talmud, um, because I think without these concepts, it's really difficult to understand what's um, taking place. But I also want to um, shift gears and even do so a bit dramatically. Um, in, in order to understand this more fully, and give you like an extra dimension here to the study of Talmud. Let, let's actually talk about the Talmud now, because until now, like we've been kind of circling around it, right? So let's um, let's talk a little about the Talmud. Um, so uh, Hegel, Hegel writes a book called The Phenomenology of the Mind. Uh, this book is an exposition of the coming to be of knowledge. How does knowledge come about? In this book, Hegel talks about human consciousness. He talks about uh, he talks about subjectivity, as well as the realization of a reason through spirit and absolute knowledge. Um, these matters are outside the scope of our discussions. However, what is interesting, and this is important to our discussions is that after Hegel wrote the phenomenology of the mind, he wrote a preface to this book. There is something about the structure of Hegel's inquiry that is useful for our purposes. I'd like to bring to your attention an essay written about the preface to Hegel's phenomenology of the mind. The preface was written by Hegel, but what I want to read to you and give me a moment is a paragraph. Well, the, the author of the essay was John uh, Hypolite, a French philosopher, a champion of Hegel. And he wrote an essay on the preface to the phenomenology. The preface was written by Hegel. The essay is written by uh, Hypolite. And here's what he writes about the preface. Give me a moment, I just want to find it. Okay. Here it is. When Hegel had finished the phenomenology, he reflected retrospectively on his philosophic enterprise and wrote the preface. So it's only after having written the book that Hegel can then write the preface. Continuing. It is a strange demonstration, for he says above all, don't take me seriously in a preface. The real philosophical work is what I have just written, the phenomenology of the mind. And if I speak to you outside of what I have written, these marginal comments cannot have the value of the work itself. Don't take a preface seriously. Okay, <laughs> so you're probably all wondering why I'm doing this. Um, just bear with me. 
Why should the preface not be taken seriously? Uh, well, to begin with, the preface contains the words pre-fascio, which literally means beforehand. Preface, preface, right? Um, interesting, though, the preface is usually written only after the author completes the work. Maybe it should have been called a postface. I'm not sure. But as noted by, uh, as noted, uh, Hegel reflected on his work and only then wrote the preface. This was a conscious decision. So what's the purpose of the preface? It's not literary. Rather, it's expository. It means to expose the work or perhaps you can state it a little differently, to extract abstract ideas from the work and present these abstract ideas to the reader. So, okay, so why does Hegel object to the preface, um, which he then proceeds to write? Uh, Hegel's objection to the preface is based on a contrast between abstract generalities and the dynamic fluid motion of cognition or thought. Prefaces relate to abstractions, to conclusions, to the monarch notes. I don't know if you had that in England, but to the monarch notes that literature teachers in the U.S. dread. Monarch notes, summary of the book. You have to read a book for, for a literature class, and then you just buy the monarch notes, read the monarch notes. It's much shorter. Um, when you read a preface, you are actually reading certain norms of truth that can be extracted from the text. On the other hand, cognition, reading the text, is related to the structure of knowing, to the activity of human thought that is in constant motion, like the waves of an ocean. It is dynamic and it is fluid. It's not about abstractions. It's not about conclusions. It's about the structure of knowledge and the experience of cognition. Okay, let's leave Hegel now. As he reaches a different place than I would, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, and that's okay. He was a great philosopher, and we can respect him, and we can disagree with him. Uh, he reaches conclusions that I don't agree with. Uh, but as I told you uh, two weeks ago, I'm always in search of a bridge that can help the Westerner cross into the world of the Talmud. And I think Hegel was useful for this purpose, because a reader of the Talmudic text, a real serious student of the Talmudic text, will recognize this self-movement in his consciousness as he surrenders himself to and masters the Talmudic text. But here's the thing. Very few students of Talmud actually do that. Right? Very few students of Talmud actually surrender themselves to the text by reading the text, by reading the text precisely over and over again, by becoming familiar with the flow of words and by actively committing the text to memory. This experience allows a student to become cognizant of subtle details. So here's the thing, studying Talmud is not about the preface. It's not about the preface. There are many prefatory gestures 
translating the text into English. Here it is. I understand it as in Safari, which I use and I love. Nothing against Safari. Or the great Steinzeltz, Allah Shalom. Tremendous Tamil Hacham. But indulging in prefaces robs the student, robs the Talmud of the self-moving structure of the Talmudic text. For example, people studying Dat Yomi are actually looking for quick abstractions, quick conclusions. What's the bottom line? Oh yeah, I kind of understand that. Sure, yeah, they disagree and okay, he's right and he's wrong. They are using a preface to displace a masterpiece. That does not constitute the study of Talmud. The study of Talmud involves cognition and self-moving internal structures. The great Ashi, perhaps one of the greatest, did all he can do. But what is all you can do? He wrote a preface. Which great master won't write a preface? But the preface can only be written by one like Rashi, who himself delved into the text, who himself experienced the great ocean of the Talmud, who himself allowed himself to be knocked down by the waves to experience what real darkness is. Rashi faced the text, and so he wrote his preface. It's easy to replace the text of the Talmud with the text of Rashi's preface. And this has all been done. You know who never did that? Rashi. Because when Rashi studied the Talmud, there was no Rashi. Um, the French philosopher uh, Hypolite, and I, I might be mispronouncing that, I apologize if I am. But he points out that Hegel damns his own preface even as he writes it. Well, why write it? Because it gives the reader a general idea of what's about to happen. That's important. That's why the preface is written. But the preface doesn't displace the book. Similarly, Rashi is not a Rashi is not the Talmud. Rashi is about the Talmud. It's a preface that can only be written by someone like Rashi who did not substitute Perush Rashi or Perush Steinzelt or Sepharia for the study of Talmud. And I want to end with the following memory, because I used to study Gemara with my father, and he was very strict. I mean, he really demanded discipline, and it was tough. But I remember Friday nights, and I was like, uh, you know, after Friday night dinner, you sit down, you study Torah. It's a special thing to study Torah Friday night. And I remember studying the text of the Talmud, right, and repeating the text over and over again, and the words, the words become alive. And they begin to speak to you, and you can begin to listen to the words. When you enter the ocean of the Talmud, you will be in darkness many times, right? But if you're willing to engage the text directly, if you're willing to risk being in darkness, then you can see some light at the end. And, you know, I know many of you uh, may want to study Talmud with me, may you want to study, and I'm, I'm very happy to teach it. I think it's great. It's not an easy discipline. It takes commitment. But most of all, there's no easy substitutes. A preface is great to read after the fact. And maybe you'll write a preface yourself. 
right? But don't confuse and don't substitute the masterpiece. The masterpiece is the Talmudic text. And that's the message that I wanted to convey to all of you today. Acham, what a message to convey. And it's been conveyed and absorbed. Uh, we are so uh, excited to uh, explore the masterpiece with you. Please, God, in the in the new year. Do you have time for a few questions or have you got a hard stop? Uh, I have two minutes. Two I minutes? Two okay. Minutes. Let's do some YouTube. quick questions in two minutes. Um, anyone who wants to please just unmute and go ahead and ask. Anybody? I saw a few in the chat. Uh, Jack Hadari, he wrote, law is always halakha, but halakha is not always law. Or the two are only roughly connected in most cases. Well, halakha, a fixed textual format, is generally the best way to transmit laws. That is correct. But it's not the exclusive way in which laws were uh, transmitted, because as we know, there was a a Gothic material which also transmits laws. So what's the difference? The difference is if you have a halakha transmitting law, you must remember that particular formulation. You can't deviate from the formulation, add a word here, subtract a word there. The formulation is key. On the other hand, if you have a gada transmitting the law, you must remember it word for word. Uh, the famous Rabbeinu Nisim Gaon, he used to transmit agadot, and oftentimes he would not quite follow the text perfectly because it's an agada, and it doesn't need to be followed uh, perfectly. Brilliant. Rabbi Shmuley Phillips has asked, what exactly existed and was transmitted between the generations prior to Rabbi Kiva? Not a text, just general teachings? Right. Uh, what was transmitted was concepts. Um, and um, they were detailed. Uh, I don't want to say that it was general. I think it was detailed. But the point is, there was no authoritative text that can be presented in here. Kazera Eve Kaddish, right? But rather... It was, a, it was a similar, that's why I brought the English common law system. The English common law system lasted for centuries and the judges understood the laws of England and they applied the laws and they transmitted the laws at the conceptual level, but not as a code. Now, on the other hand, in the French uh, Napoleonic system, it was, um, there was a code and the authority lied in the code, not in the judges. In the common law system, the authority lied in the judges. Final question. What are Esav and Yaakov in this formulation? Halakha, Esav, Soneet, Yaakov. Well, I guess that um, the point of the Chachamim and the meaning of this Agadah is that the two systems, the system put into place by Esav, um, representing the Roman Empire, is incompatible with the system uh, put into the, by the Jewish people, um, which is the Torah system. Why is that so? Uh, to understand that, I uh, would tell you to read the Horizontal Society of my father because he really explains that at great length and in great detail. Fantastic. Rav, thank you so, so, so much. Uh, looking forward to Talmud classes with you. I think uh, uh, I can I speak on behalf of everybody here and uh, hope to see you very soon. You are always welcome here. And uh, for everybody, thank you for making it. Looking forward to seeing you all next week for Rabbi Dweck's continuation of his series. Good night, good day, wherever you are. Kotov, thank you. The best. Okay.